Station. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, business and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards. Today, I've caught something contagious. Luckily, that something is their co-founder, Paul Kemp Robertson, a chap with serious smarts for global marketing comms, Paul is the brain behind Contagious, part editorial, part consultancy, part research. They get their kicks helping brands and agencies be more creative, get smarter and deliver better work. Previously, he was part of the launch team behind Shots magazine before going on to become editor and more recently, Leo Burnett's worldwide director of creative resources. Paul says marketers should not be afraid to ask heretical questions. By this, I mean the kind that suck the air out of the room or make you feel you risk losing your job just by asking them. But they're exactly the interrogations that could protect your brand by sparking ideas your rivals don't have the guts to even think about. Welcome to the show, Paul. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Right. Seven quickfire questions, Paul. London or Chicago? London. I love Chicago, but London all the, all the way. Borough or Borough Market? Again, Middlesbrough, Borough all the way. I love Borough Market. It's where our office is based, and it's a fantastically buzzy place to be, but my heart is always a teesider. Nice. Well, sticking with that theme then, Janinio or Ravenelli? Janinio. <laughs> he wears a magic hat. <laughs> Absolute legend. <laughs> well, the, little, the, little, the little fella, as he's known in Middlesbrough. Right, the original Contagious Commandment. This one's a bit unfair. So be useful, be relevant, or be entertaining. <laughs> um how useful work entertaining okay right ridiculously we've got famous pools skulls or gaza <laughs> i have to say gaza because he played for middlesbrough at one point although uh i think paul is probably the more reliable character isn't he yeah, <laughs> yeah i forgot he played for borough of course he did of course yeah, he, did. he had a sort of a, a spree towards the end you know yeah he's actually famous for crashing the uh the team coach into um the uh the the walled entrance of the training ground because uh for a, a yeah a lunchtime jape wow the stuff he got away with two more <laughs> metaverse or meh Metaverse, as in, <laughs> as in MEH. Yeah, definitely. At the moment, definitely the MEH. I think it's got the potential to grow, but at the moment, yeah, don't believe the hype. Finally, this is uh, with the help of my brother Andrew. Raise the creative bar or a drunken night out at the gutter bar? <laughs> a drunken night out in the gutter bar. It's only <laughs> once a year, so you can get away with it, can't you? <laughs> nice. So listen, thank you so much for joining us. We always make a point on this show of asking every guest about their path to where they are now and we find that more often than not it's rarely linear which I think warrants celebration could you start by telling the audience what was your first ever job and then what was your first proper job well my first job was a I worked in a sports shop in uh, in Middlesbrough for about 10 pounds a day and I was a sales assistant and then I, I did loads of jobs when I was at university um, things like kitchen porter I worked as a, um, a technician on a industrial conveyor belt repair line which was quite interesting in a heat wave 
patching industrial conveyor belts with um, glue. And I got made redundant after three weeks because I was so terrible at it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then I was, I was a runner uh, on commercial shoots and music videos and so on. So I guess my very first proper job was at Shots. I was the intern who became editor, basically. So I was involved in the, the launch issue. Um, I knew nothing about advertising. Um, in my interview, I said that Saatchi and Saatchi was an investment bank. So they, they didn't give me the job as a researcher. Um, they gave me, they said, if you want to come and help on the first issue, we'll pay you £50 a week in cash. And that's how it started. So that, that was my first proper job. At that stage then of your life, did you have any intention to go into the marketing and advertising world? Not necessarily, no. I think um, my background, like my dad's a sports journalist. His job was to cover Middlesbrough Football Club for his sins, hence my sort of passion for <laughs> for, for that team, having travelled all the length and breadth of the country. So for me, I was always good at you know English and writing. I did a drama and English degree at Goldsmiths, one of those courses at Rishi Sunak's probably trying to demolished yes. right now so my intention was to try and get to tv or journalism i was on the brink of doing a, a, a sort of journalist course and then decided to do a master's actually at goldsmiths in in um in, in drama um sort of television drama and then during the process of that um i had sort of various part-time jobs so i was working in market research i was doing things like mystery shopping uh for a market research agency um phoning up most royal mail offices around the country pretending to be a mystery shopper which was excruciatingly embarrassing. But then I, I worked on this sort of um, freelance contract for a corporate video company who made, you know, sort of corporate videos for the likes. This is again before the internet and so on. This is training videos for Barclays and SO and so on. And on um, the last shoot I was doing, the production manager that was giving me a lift to this uh, farm somewhere in Buckinghamshire was moaning that she had three jobs on her answer machine. And I was literally going to be unemployed or back at the market research agency the next week. And um, I sort of mentioned my plight and sort of gave, gave him my little sort of business card that I printed at WH Smith. She just, I think, took pity on me. She was much older than me and just sort of felt sorry because I was literally trying to get into the industry type thing. And just by sheer coincidence, she met Guy, who's now my partner on Contagious, who was creating this funny little company called Shots. And yeah. she'd worked with him seven years previously at Thames Television, had never met him uh, in the interview period, bumped into him in a restaurant. And long story short, um, she said, I'll kind of give you the name of this little lad to come and to come and meet you. Yeah, as I say, I met him and spent the first half an hour of the interview talking about Thailand because uh, he asked me what my experience in the industry was. And I said, well, not very much because I've been in Thailand for two months on holiday with my girlfriend. And he said, oh, I'm half Thai. So 40 minutes of Thailand and then five minutes at the end, what do you know about advertising? Which is when yeah. I did that. I thought Saatchi was, was a bank. So I didn't get the job, but I got the uh, the sort of internship type, you know, 50 quid a week thing. And that took me into an industry that I had no idea about, you know, growing up in Middlesbrough and expecting to go off on this completely different route and journalism. I, I thought advertising was a department like, you know, say, Ford cars, their advertising would sit next to their sprockets department. It would just be something like, you know, churned out by, by a company sort of thing. So the whole idea of an advertising agency and, and, and whatever. So it was a really sort of seductive industry because this was sort of back in the, the 90s, you know, where advertising was probably a little bit more simple because it was all around sort of film and, and print and, and so on. Yeah, so I literally stumbled into it accidentally and just took a shine. That's really interesting. And yeah, you're right, that 90s period. I've, I've talked about that period a few times with the likes of Paul Feldwick comes to mind. And I'm sure with Tom Roach, we spoke about those wonderful Barclay card adverts with Rowan Atkinson and just the time yeah. where entertainment and fun just used to be a real kind of common thread with advertising. Yeah. There's only like four channels on TV. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And it's really encouraging, I find, to talk to people like yourself who who perhaps pursued 
paths which weren't necessarily a million miles away, but paths that nonetheless were, you know, until you discovered it via shots and, and gee, were mostly hidden from you. It, to me, it seems like advertising tends to be an industry that whilst you are aware of and exposed to ads, most people don't really get the fact that it is an industry in its own right until they're, they're much older and progress. And then they might sidestep in or they might come in. But either way, there's kind of serendipity and luck at play. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, because once I got into it, I suddenly, you know, you realise how interesting, you know, exciting it is because it involves strategy as well as creativity, like solving problems. I think that's what I loved the most was, you know, you sort of how you could distill complexity. You know, agencies are fantastic at really getting to the heart of a brand, what it stands for, solving friction and, and so on. So I just love the idea of making sort of simplicity out of complexity. And at Shots, you know, we looked outside of the advertising industry as well. We were looking at like best in craft of film and post-production and so on, just to try and think of, you know, what would influence the, the advertising industry. And do you feel like during that time, and I suppose even now, to be honest, Paul, that you've fully let go of journalism because of course you can't have because it's still a core part of what you do <laughs> but but also you, it's almost like you've had to release it a bit to to grab onto creativity and strategy and everything else that you are involved in these days yeah but I think what's interesting about because by sort of keeping the journalistic roots because contagious you know half the business is the the contagious IQ uh, membership platform which is like an editorial resource where we sort of look at the very very best most effective work globally um, that's going to influence and, and sort of motivate the advertising industry. But what I find interesting is that there are moments where people from sort of outside the advertising industry want to sort of lean in for a perspective. You know, I mean, this sounds very like braggy and I don't mean it to be braggy because but I did um, a TED talk. And again, it was relatively by accident because we used to sort of go to a lot of the sort of TED business events. They had a subscription to Contagious for their marketing team because obviously TED is funded heavily by brand you know funding sponsorship and so on so they needed to keep abreast of the industry and they'd seen an article that we'd written in our magazine this was when sort of bitcoin was just bubbling into the consciousness and we wrote an article about the potential of sort of branded currencies ultimately it was like the whole thing about you know currency being in flux and, and the idea of um, the value and it could, could could brands like patagonia for instance have their own currency one day where you know they they would assign currency to brands that they believed in that tick their sort of sustainable boxes it mean as a consumer you can kind of make ethical choices very easily uh, by you know investing in the patagonia shilling which is pegged to the dollar or whatever you know so and that ended up long story short being a being a ted talk has been viewed 1.4 million times you know and um i did preface it when i, I did it because it was one of those sort of pre-ted conference events where they sort of get people to do test talks and you know, some of the participants get to sort of experiment with um, their subject matter. So it was sort of off piste kind of thing. And But I did have to preface it when I started talking. Um, like, so I made a joke, like I said, trust me, I work in advertising. And then <laughs> the, the audience scoffs instantly. <laughs> but, you know, I think partly that sort of helps, you know, that sort of sense of slight, um, what's well, sort of, I don't know, a lot of people work in the advertising industry. There's a slight insecurity that you almost like embarrassed. It's not the film industry. It's not you know the tech industry. It's is it proper business? And you know it's all. <laughs> and that potentially explains why there's so many awards because there's a sort of constant affirmation that what you're doing is uh, is worth a shiny gong. But as I say, I'm sort of like a massive advocate that um, the advertising industry, like you know, fuels growth and innovation and, and behavior change and at its very, very best, you know, can sort of change the world as well as product categories and people and so on. So, 
Yeah, well, I mean, if you hadn't brought up the TED talk, I was going to. So I'm, I'm pleased oh. you have done. And, and I think that I think that starts absolutely perfect. And there's a you know there's there's so much there's a worrying amount of Ipsos data that that, that kind of reinforces what you've just said about the public's perception of those in Adland. Oh, yeah. I like that com- that kind of affirmation theory you have and why, explaining why there are so many shiny gongs because it is you know borderline ridiculous these days. But you can understand. But that commercial creativity, I think, is what you know those of us and I include my self in this statement those of us who have this weird love for the industry that's probably the root of it it's that idea that with creativity you can not only solve problems but you can drive commercial value and real life value yeah i mean obviously you know contagious i think one of our first little mantras you know we had sort of stuck up in the kitchen of our first little office in soho was creativity kicks the living crap out of non-creative work you know, we should have had T-shirts made with that sort of thing. But, you know, we, I've just always sort of believed, like, you know, we, we sort of try and focus on the top 5%, say, of, of advertising. That's part of the, you know, the sort of the um, the proposition behind Contagious is that we will be that editorial filter for you. So we'll look at a 1,000 things and talk about the best 50 to 100, you know, so that you, you know, by seeing the best, you you kind of, you know, you, you become the best by learning from the best type thing. But I, I like the, the scientific definition of creativity, um, which is an idea that's novel, good, and useful, I think. But for me, it's that sort of finding new ways to make connections between familiar things. Um, I remember I, I threw an old sort of contagious deck. I found there was, there was a quote from uh, this motivation expert called Daniel Pink. And he described creativity as giving the world something it didn't know it was missing, which I thought was a really nice way of looking at it. And I think, you know, advertising is, you know, did the world need a gorilla playing drums? No. Was the world was the world a better place for having a gorilla playing drums for 90 seconds to a philip collins track absolutely did the business grow as a result absolutely did uh, you know cadbury's get a huge amount more mental availability going yes they did you know so i don't know there's an emotional connection to to creativity and i think that despite all of the changes and the the, the new channels the new technologies the sort of changing consumer behaviors all that sort of things that i still feel you know and i'm sort of you know sound like Dave Trot here who's a fantastic legend and all the rest of it but it's I still feel as though that 30 second spot film has got the power in a way that nothing else does to really kind of move you inspire you you know sort of make a an association or an impression um in like nothing else and I think that's again you know one of the sort of superpowers advertising has is to have that emotional kicker at their disposal Partly because of understanding people, you know, I think that's one of advertising's great strengths is, you know, the sort of the planners, the strategists and creators and so on is, is just really understanding what motivates people. Yes, yeah, I often find in the industry people will ask if you're interested in behavioural science because there's been a kind of trend over the last few years and obviously Richard Chosson and Rory's books have also you know, added fuel to that kind of wave of people being more actively involved in it. But to me, and I've made this point before, so apologies <laughs> listeners, but if you work in this industry and you're not interested in human behaviour, then you're in the, you're on the wrong industry. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I think that point on creativity is true. Funny enough, Daniel Pink is probably one of the first TED Talks I ever saw, actually. I think he gave at all god 10 plus years ago now really really smart guy do you think then in terms of i was going to ask why should people take creativity as seriously as anything else in the business and i accept you you've already kind of submitted an answer to that but but i wonder since the 90s and we mentioned i mentioned the barclay cards ad since the 90s is it simply a case that there's been other distractions or maybe there's other business forces within companies working against creativity what do you put it down to? 
partly that a lot of businesses, not marketers, but businesses, um, lost some faith in in, in advertising. Um, often the world works in pendulums, you know, and the sort of pendulum swung towards programmatic, rationalization, optimization, ROI, instant results, and, 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 and like really a sort of like a heavy sales focus, thinking that that made marketing, you know, sort of a more valuable asset within the boardroom. You know, there's always this put down of the marketers is that it's the coloring in department or, uh, you know, that they're not quite the grown-ups in the boardroom type thing. And um, it was a way of sort of trying to suddenly make marketing feel more valid and because it could be personalized and whatever. And I think that it was almost like throwing the baby out with the bathwater that, yes, a lot of those arguments were valid and a lot of performance marketing is incredibly efficient and, and can, make a, can make a difference, you know. God knows I've bought socks off Instagram. Have you bought your Nordic socks off Instagram, Charles? But anyway, <laughs> people forget that sort of creativity is a muscle. Like, you know, it really needs to sort of um, to be worked on and it, it should form part of a business culture. And I think, you know, I'm sure people have often in, in your podcast referred to Les Bennett and Peter Field and all the work they've done looking yeah. at um, the value of creative effectiveness. Um, you've got authors like Paul Feldwick, you know, famous uh, former planner, saying the same thing where it's that you know, advertising, and this is why when we go back to the 90s, uh, what advertising was fantastic at was driving fame. And that's why we call Contagious to a, a large extent is that um, ideas that people want to share and talk about and react to and pass on and watch again. And again, you know, you sort of come back to, to video. It doesn't have to be a 30-second commercial, but video, the propensity of like being prepared to watch something endlessly because it entertains you and you see a different layer to it every time or it's your favorite song in the background or as a funny little insight or whatever and i think that that's what sometimes businesses sort of lose sight of the fact that having an emotional impact on people can actually drive sort of outsized gains when it comes to sales loyalty penetration market share all those sciencey things don't ever forget that it's the art of advertising that that, that packs the power i think john Hickey, he was also saying like you know their sort of one of their underlying principles at bbh was uh, our objective is effectiveness you know which is what every marketer wants what every cfo wants and chief exec wants but he was saying as, a, as an agency and obviously at the time like the most um, creative agency on the planet arguably um our strategy is creativity so objective is effectiveness strategy is creativity which i think is a, a fantastic way of sort of encapsulating the the value of powerful commercial creativity. Yeah, I mean, to, to quote another great, sadly, a late great, Jeremy Bullmore, I, you can't move from me quoting Jeremy Bullmore, to be honest, Paul. So uh, <laughs> there's a lovely line of his that we've had on our website for years now, which is brands are fiendishly complicated, elusive, slippery, half real, half virtual things. And when CEOs try to think about brands, their brains hurt. <laughs> Good quote. One of the issues is just being able to define and truly measure effectiveness. And it's not so much that it can't be measured, it's more that it's relatively very difficult versus measuring stuff that might happen further down the funnel. Yes, exactly. It's more intangible. Yeah, exactly that. But I do think maybe sort of, you know, after the pandemic, that it was honestly where people suddenly wanted more human connection, they wanted to be entertained and consoled or whatever so whether the sort of that pendulum i talked about started swinging back towards less you know rational targeted type advertising and more communal stories and human stories so maybe you know that sort of explains the shift i think that we're seeing but i don't know there's something that the contagious advisory department talks about a lot is that people often say oh you know creativity is a superpower it's a fuel it's an elixir all this all this sort of stuff but what we would say is that 
creativity is like such an essential part of your business. You know, a lot of CEOs, CFOs feel very comfortable talking about zero-based budgeting, you know, where you start with a zero budget and then justify every single cost. And we sort of say, well, start with zero-based creativity. Is that you cannot afford not to be creative. There are so many studies that will show you that, you know, cliched, standard, formulaic, very sort of KPI heavy, generic advertising just gets ignored. And you're actually wasting money by doing inefficient advertising that people don't care about, don't want to watch, don't want to don't even register. I think people have developed a sort of cognitive dissonance to most advertising. So you've got, which is why, you know, I keep going back, like he's like the gorilla playing drums cuts through, you know, because it's surprising, it jolts you, it's unexpected, really charming, related back to the brand, you know. So that's what, to me, it boils down to that you can actually, through creativity, get those outsized gains in, as I say, sales and loyalty and all the things that, you know, the left brain side of a business wants, the right, the right brain side can actually deliver if you trust it and invest in it and try and bake it into your culture so that, you know, creativity is rewarded and celebrated and, and yeah, it's part of your mission as opposed to being denigrated as the coloring in department. Yeah, I, to be honest, I've never heard anyone use the term zero-based creativity, but I, I really like it. It's really good. It's really good. I might have to steal that, Paul. I can't take credit for that. It has to come from our contagious advisory unit who have made it of some much more <laughs> people than I am. Part, part of my trick at Contagious is that you hire people who are much more uh, intelligent and uh, switched on than, than I am. Company of giants and all that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Talking about pendulum swinging then, you were at Can Lions recently and you've very recently penned a very smart and succinct Can condensed article. So one of the things which we're talking about because it's topical but also it, it does represent a threat of sorts or certainly something that is easily, I suppose, misunderstood and people are wrestling with is, is AI. What were your observations at can and what's your take on what our past guest Dave Harlan calls the diligent robot overlords? <laughs> That's a good way of describing them. Um, obviously, at Can AI dominated a lot of conversations. Can has become increasingly more like South by Southwest. There are so many um, activities going on at any one time, so not just in the Palais, but in you know a range of boats and beaches and whatever. And I think AI, if you looked across the week, was probably the number one topic after diversity, inclusion, and sustainability as well. But I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. We, just, we ran an article on the Contagious blog by, with, with an interview with Michael Farmer, who, who's a guy that wrote that very kind of vicious attack on the advertising industry a few years ago called Madison Avenue Manslaughter. You know, because he used to be in advertising, and then he crossed over to consultancy and just saw what he, you know, he regarded as a massive fundamental weakness in the advertising agency model, so just went for it in the form of a book. And then his new book, which is Madison Avenue Makeover, is charting the progress of an agency called Huge, whose sort of chief exec basically decided that the agency model was flawed and he was going to move away from sort of like a serviced, fee-based, people-based model into the one that was more product-based. So I think Michael Farmer's book is about that, that sort of journey, coming in as a quite, you know, a skeptic, a healthy skeptic. But in the interview, getting back to AI, uh, obviously it was a question that we asked him. He basically said that AI is like pouring gasoline on the trends that we discussed in Madison Avenue manslaughter. He said that the business model of the holding companies to a very considerable extent is to get paid for bodies. And I've seen enough of AI to know that a lot of those bodies are going to be replaced by AI, like particularly in media planning uh, and also around digital and social creativity. 
And he's saying, if that, you know, digital and social content represents 40% of the total workload of your agency, then he reckons 20% of an agency headcount could be displaced by AI very easily. And he said, if you're, you know, if your overhead is counting people and charging for those people, you're kind of in trouble. I think he pointed out that agencies, you know, they, they basically, the fees are based on two times the cost of their cheapest person. And a consultancy is more like five times uh, an average or well-paid person. So, yeah, so he was sort of saying that, so you get these doom mongers saying that AI is going to rip the industry to shreds, you know, we're in the loser's game and all this sort of stuff. But I, I don't know, I, I found that from our point of view that we're definitely in a novelty phase with AI, you know, and it is going to have ramifications on on advertising from things like casting and content and so on. But there are lots of opportunities to harness it for good. So I know that you've got a lot of planners are using like today, like ChatGPT and so on to like pass very complex briefs or complex academic papers and get into the absolute nuggets of what's important. You, you can use it in pitches or to visualize stuff to help clients come with you because sometimes that's part of that, the, the, the lack of faith or that sometimes clients need a creative leap to understand the points you're trying to land. So, you know, yes, AI is going to be very much part of the industry, but you hear these sort of interesting stories like um, a lot of creative directors are saying, yeah, we have a brief or an idea or, you know, some sort of concept, stick it into, into you know, chat GPT or some sort of generative AI machine. And, you know, whatever solutions come out or ideas come out, we know that we need to ignore them, you know, because it's based on a massive data set of things that have gone before. So it's like the way to be original and creative and, 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 and so on is to be human, you know, because humans can be deviant in a way that machines can't. Um, one of the talks that I did see at Cannes was Richard Brim um, from Adam and Eve DDB as Chief Creative Officer. And his talk was give them a punch in the feels, which I thought was a fantastic <laughs> title. And, you know, he wasn't being a sort of AI deniest or denialist, or was that the word? But he sort of said that feeling, you know, human feeling is one of the most sort of powerful tools that we forget. And robots don't have feelings. And I think he, he quoted Maya Angelou, who said, I've learned that people will forget what you said, and people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. So I think with his tongue very firmly in cheek, he said, AI could go F itself. You know, it can't feel like we can. So I think that was one of the things that came through at Cannes was that tech was there to enable humanity. And it was always like, you know, humans won, robots nil kind of thing. It's a really good point. That Mayor Angelou quote has come up a, a few times in, I suppose, the last few years. And I think it's the one of the most perfect opportunities to use it is that article from Richard that you quote in, in your article. Tariqa Sand from McDonald's, he's a I think, chief marketer and um, marketing and customer experience officer based in the US. And he, he just said an interesting thing in one of his talks. He was on about, you know, the fact that advertisers have got all this data and, and access to every number under the sun. And, and we probably know consumers better than consumers know themselves. But he was saying that it's almost like you've got to step beyond that and really just get to know consumers on a more human level. And he says, like, just get closer to them because you have to find the soul of your brand in the soul of your customers. So, like, invite them in, get them to create content, let them, you like, look at what they do, observe their behaviors, watch their TikToks. And I just thought that idea of soul is really interesting. You know, so we're in a marketer that's got access, to say, to machines and data and, you know, that, that very empirical side of the business, the fact that they're looking into something which is very ephemeral and very human and intangible and hard for AI to sort of grasp at this stage. 
And that's the word soul, you know, which goes back to what we said before about, you know, the, the best advertising creative has got a soul and an emotional kicker that really connects or, you know, motivates you. Then I thought that, that that's what I took out of Can was like, you know, at the moment, you know, there's a lot of questions about what's going to happen. Is it going to be chaos or liberation? But I think at the moment, the humans are winning over the machines because we're using it to get to good solutions. So Yeah, well said. There's a few things there which I think stood out. One is the fact that, I mean, you said creative directors are using it as a, as, a, as a way of showing what not to do. That kind of, you know, creativity has to only work in, in the context of what's come before it and originality is, is key. So if they're basing everything on the past, then actually it's probably not the best place to be looking, albeit maybe it would be sometimes. But the idea of feeling and soul is, is, is key. And ultimately, if we get to a point where AI can design for humans better than humans can, then I think we've got bigger problems to worry about. <laughs> and, uh, this guy, uh, Russ Mashmeyer, I think he works at Shopify on, on the, the sort of commerce, spatial commerce. And he was saying by 2030, machines will have surpassed human creative capabilities you know, so will humans become surplus? We're like, no, you know, even the acknowledgement. <laughs> the future of, of creativity and commerce is still going to be driven by human beings. But I think AI is good. You know, it's good. I think a lot of creatives should take it as a, as a real motivating tool and a bit of a, you know, getting getting people out of their comfort zones because we commented at um, Contagious around the, I'm not sure if you remember that Tiffany recently collaborated with Nike yes, on a yeah, shoe. Yeah, yeah. And there was a hype before it came out. Um, and people went on to... Um, like Dali and uh, Mid Journey and so on, and started creating what they felt should be the ultimate, you know, Tiffany Nike collab. And then they were some fantastic, amazing, like really sort of futuristic, interesting, slightly divergent objects were coming out of this exercise. And then when the actual shoe itself landed, it was really dull. It was, yeah. yeah. People were really deflated, right? Uninspirational. It was like, hmm. Maybe that's a case of like robots one human nil humans nil on that one. So yeah, so if we can just you know, there's a way of harnessing some of the the power. I still think we're in our phase when we need to take a lot of AI with a pinch of salt. I think someone described ChatGPT as um, having the capacity to hallucinate facts. Yes, just like make things up, just make things up. It does. It does. Yeah, it draws very strange conclusions or just tells lies, just yeah. for the sake, your convenience sake. Yeah, I've I've got friends who can do that well enough. I don't. <laughs> I, don't I don't need it. Yes, there's a line in your in your article actually where you say holding companies scrambled to show they were in front of the wave, the AI wave specifically. Yeah. I know that we all need to take can increasingly. I would suggest with a pinch of salt because it is a is a catwalk of sorts right but do you think it's a problem that companies do try and show they're in front of the wave or at least surfing a wave perhaps when they don't even know which direction it's going in or is that just a reflection of reality of adland i think it's a reflection of the reality of adland because you again that's one of the most that's one of the things one of the reasons that people enjoy working in the, in the business is that you've constantly got to be on the, on the edge of what's happening and you've got to have an incredibly diverse um, knowledge base. And, and, you know, one of our sort of phrases is like, stay curious, you know, otherwise you will, you, you will not thrive in this industry if you don't have a curious mindset. I think agencies and holding companies would argue that they are obliged to be on the cusp of new technology. Anything that's going to influence, you know, consumer purchase patterns, consumer behavior, the wider society or you know that you've got to have a point of view on it and you've got to have a sense of expertise i mean i think i don't know for me i'm sort of a i think can is is an important place an important festival 
some people dismiss it as a sort of like creative love fest, but I think there's a lot of serious conversations go on. I think it's now kind of got that sweet spot where sufficient numbers of marketers go en masse, plus publishers, you know, media owners, obviously you've got the ad tech um, and social media platforms and so on, but it just feels like it's crystallized enough now that the, 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 the influencers, the players, the, you know, the decision makers are all, all in one space. Um, some of the content is, you know, frippery and so on, but I think there's a lot of very serious conversations happen at Cannes and stuff that does win um, is, you know, they've probably got the percentages for it, but it's probably like 1% of global advertising output and it is very much a barometer. And I think for me, the sort of best the, the advantage of it is that marketers now are really keen to win at Cannes. They all want to be creative marketer of the year. They want to have a gold lion haul if they don't win sufficient medals then they're asking their agencies why not and that basically fosters what i said before about having a creative culture you know businesses actually want to win at can that's good for creativity in in general because it means that you have to invest in creativity because you know that it's a business multiplier you know there's that very famous often used bill burnback quote which i think was in issue one of contagious in 2004 but it was that you know creativity is the last legal means of gaining an unfair advantage over your competition and it still really, really stands. I think particularly more so now because there's so much content and noise and clutter and it's much, much harder to be, you know, get noticed, stand out and so on. So therefore creativity arguably is even more valuable when you do land that sort of gold line winning or, you know, if it gets through the contagious filter, you know, we always talk about looking at the, the sort of the very, very best work. Um, so we always see ourselves as a kind of editorial award show because we reject 10 times more ideas than we feature. It's interesting, actually, I'm only just kind of thinking about this point now, but how much technology in Adland is increasingly part of the world outside Adland. And I think, I mean, you reference in your article, Will I Am, or as I much prefer him, as he was introduced on a French TV chat show once, Will Je Suis. <laughs> <laughs> this is wonderful. That will always live with me. But, but um, we've had Bob Hoffman on a long time ago now, and he quite rightly, I think, talks about ad tech and the kind of threat to democracy that ad tech has maybe enabled. I don't, we don't need to go into that argument now because I know it's a lot more complex right. than that. And Mark Lewis, who's the Dean of the School of Communication Arts, I remember probably last year he was on and he talked about how what's interesting is these big kind of ad tech social companies say facebook for example or meta i should say actually now their financial might is more significant than many countries so actually what we kind of deal with on a day-to-day basis in terms of technology and culture quite rightly actually affects everything it's not just we, we work with quite a few law slash you know legal professional service businesses and i heard a story from their world recently where they're using AI to look for problems in in legal contracts or very complex contracts and the speed at which it's been able to do that and crucially the accuracy at which it's been able to be used is is phenomenal. So yeah, it is important to have your finger on the pulse. Yeah. What's interesting though, going back to Cannes, was that um one of the biggest winners, I think they got three Grand Prix across the week, was Apple. You know, arguably the world's biggest and most successful tech company. And their ads, which are all fundamentally about tech, they're all basically glorified product demos. All of them were incredibly human. You know, they were all that that's um, you know featuring people with um, disabilities using Apple technology to empower their lives and do incredible creative things. 
you know the, the other one about the um the one that won the, the film Grand Prix, which is like R.I.P. Leon, where a guy thinks he's killed the lizard pet of his best friend who's on holiday, uh, yeah. who sends a text to that effect, and then realizes that he hasn't, and unsends it. Really funny, simple human film, and um, that's from Apple. So you you know you've got this company that's got access to all sorts of you know data and technology platforms and that financial clout bigger than most countries in the world. Um, yet they still are reverting back to very human, very simple, very traditional advertising. Yeah, their latest is it the iPhone 14, the battery life ad they've just released of the uh, the guy <laughs> just on his tractor and that huge long straight is is beautiful for that, that yes. similar reason. Talk to Myron, who's the Apple CMO on on stage in Cannes. He he talked about the role of agencies and he was saying like agencies are still incredibly valuable. They still got a place, but only if they see themselves as what he described as like outside agitators. You know, like having a point of view, keeping clients honest, and that's their value over like AI and whatever is having that point of view that you're not going to get from programmatic or, or generative AI created um, content. It's that point of view, that honesty, and so on. You know, so if they remember that awful, awful um, Kendall Jenner ad for Pepsi a few years ago, that happened because at the time they did through an in-house agency, and the argument there is like you know no external agency would have allowed that to happen. Because it was so out of tune, it was so tone deaf, and it was like you know, uh, an honest advertising agency would not have allowed their client to produce that because they'd have warned them that it wouldn't go down well with people because they have a better understanding of uh, of the audience. Yeah, absolutely. I've long said that the agency should be more like a um, personal trainer at the gym where they're challenging you and agitating, and you know, someone more important than someone who just says yes. Well, yeah, absolutely. Sorry, it's just most podcasts would drop a jarring advert into this vacuous point in space and time. But Gasp don't do podcast ads. And if we did, we'd probably subvert the form in a clever way that ironically gets you to contact the host at giles at gasp.agency. Only recently, some pod listening companies did just that, calling us for guidance on client retention and research. Please don't do that. Now, let's get you back to the show. Yeah, I'll have what she's having. Yeah, hang on a minute. I know we've got a couple of listener questions to get to, but before we do, I want to ask you about a point in your book, The Contagious Commandments, which we will link to in this episode listing. Your thoughts around asking heretical questions, which is something, again, I mentioned in your intro. What would you describe as a heretical question and, and why is it a commandment that you think marketers should live by? Yeah, if you look at the definition of, of heresy, it's about voicing dissent or deviation from a, a dominant theory, opinion, or practice. So on, on simple terms, it's saying the unsayable or challenging the status quo. And I think the reason it's so valuable within an advertising context is that advertising traditionally is driven by status quo. Um, you know, I used to work at Leo Burnett for uh, many years and um, helped to run the creative councils where we had a, a ladder, which is like a one to 10 scale. Basically, how do you judge and rate advertising? And four out of 10 on that scale was cliche. And the sort of proposition behind that was that in any category, anywhere in the world, 80% of the content generated um, is cliche. You know, if I said to you a shampoo commercial, you can see the cliches in your head. If I told you a car commercial, think of a car commercial for 10 seconds, you know, you're going to have obvious cliches in your head. And 
I think we talked about asking heretical questions because so many brands kind of ask what's in it for them rather than asking what's in it for the audience. They have all these sales messages and KPIs that they want to communicate in their ads, which means that so much of the advertising kind of industry's content is boring, formulaic, safe, stereotypical, um, and so on. And a way of getting out of that in a really kind of provocative way is by asking heretical questions. And it's hard, as I say, you know, there's, there's, we quoted this um, study from Cornell University that was really interesting where they did a, this, this research and found that um, creativity, because it's associated with risk, that when business people were presented with ideas that felt unorthodox, a little bit risky, something they'd never done before, the same triggers, the same reactions that are going on in their body at a very subliminal level were those associated with poison, vomit and agony. Right. <laughs> Which explains why, as I say, so much of marketing is safe, never going to lose my job by signing this off, but it means that consumers kind of ignore it. So what we say is that if you ask a really difficult question and you get to some interesting, deviant, you know, kind of unorthodox answers, chances are are your competitors are nowhere near that. So we we sort of recommend an exercise that um, the guy called Hal Gregerson pioneered from MIT called Question Storming. And his, his argument was that brainstorming is for wimps. Like, you know, if you do a brainstorming session, you normally come up with ideas inspired by the, the person that's just done the speech half an hour earlier or an existing brief or something you've read that day. Or, you know, so basically you just unearth solutions that are very close to the surface. So he's got this thing called question storming or, or question burst or catalytic questions that he calls them. But it's basically where you ask 50 questions of a problem or a brief. And you don't answer them. And that's the, that's the trick. So when we run these in, in, in workshops with clients, it's like trying to get them not to start providing answers to the questions because they will, oh, no, we can't afford that. That's been done before. We never get that through. That's not our KPI. You know, it's like, no, ask 50 questions. What happens is people kind of rush to about 25 and then start to get a little bit, like, you know, tired. And it's like, no, keep going, keep going. And then they sort of get exhausted getting to 40. And then his argument is keep going because between 40 to 50, you get that, you get that what he calls the, the big unlock. And it could be questions that get right to the heart of, you know, questioning the fundamental principles of which your company is based on or a campaign that's existed for, for 20 years or whatever. But the argument or the value of heretical questions is if you, if, if you can get to the right answer that propels your business forward, then you're in that blue ocean space, that famous, you know, INSEAD professor, blue ocean space where your competitors are still fighting in the red ocean space where everyone else is but because your idea is so radical and so heretical you know you're in this beautiful calm waters because no one's had the guts or the tenacity to get there kind of thing yeah i like the idea of question storming it's interesting because the only other jeremy bullmore quote that i often reach for is the fact that a brand's success is as reliant on the actions of its competitors as much if not more than its own actions something along those lines that's not verbatim but i think that point of the kind of relative behavior in the context of your of your sector is is bang on and i really like that yeah and you talked to Rory sutherland he was saying like you know businesses love single right answers and you feel like you get rewarded for coming up with a single right answer i think ed catmull in that brilliant you know uh, ex pixar in his book he was saying about everyone thinks the point of their work is arriving at smart answers and then, you know, you can mistake an answer for the end of an effort. And he was saying like a Pixar, one of the joys of working at Pixar and why they were so 
original and imaginative and creative was that they would celebrate arriving at a point from there. You know, you don't you see that as a jumping off point rather than a, an end point. So the opposite of a good idea can sometimes be a good idea sort of thing. So uh, keep keep going, keep going. Yeah, I always encourage people at GASP, especially new starters, to come in and ask as many dumb questions as they like because they're able to at that stage. And dumb yes, questions absolutely. are so they're so disarming and they're so important to to you know enable yeah. you to just check yourself and what you're doing. <laughs> I couldn't do more, and that's something that can say just like you know. Yeah advisory unit when we're when we're doing this sort of ask critical question workshops like one of the things we say is that you've got to bake it into your culture and like literally the the newest the most junior person in the room has got the same ranking as the chief exec like you know you that you've got to have this complete freedom to be as deviant and and you know heretical as you possibly can and you know you get to some good places so i think some of the brands that we've used as a as a you know one was um rei um which is a bit like patagonia it's like a sort of uh, outdoor clothing chain in 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 the us like a membership sort of um company and their their heretical question was why don't we close our stores on black friday because again similar to you know patagonia made a similar move but they, i think rei did it literally they shut every single store because they said you know People should be going out, celebrating, enjoying the the, you know, the great outdoors, rather than just adding to the sort of unsustainability of mass mass consumption. In the end, they sort of created a movement, and loads of other marketers, uh, retailers joined in, and uh, you know they didn't lose. They actually ended up, you know, end year on year, delivered better results because they they and they, they they got a rush of um, job applications. People wanted to work for them. You know, we've written a lot about Liquid Death, a really interesting water brand that's about to come to the UK, I think, from um, from the US, and complete heretical um way of looking at the water category which let's face it if i said to you bottled water and advertising you start thinking of mountains and babies and lots of white t-shirts and you know natural springs and fir trees and so on these guys took a death metal aesthetic their tagline was murder your thirst they went into aluminium cans which they say are more sustainable than plastic bottles and because of that and because of the way that their packaging looked ripped on alcohol advertising to freak people out mm-hmm. you know their launch commercial had somebody being a marketer being waterboarded uh, on the premise that water is actually more dangerous than uh, than uh, <laughs> the red than energy drinks you know so they've, they've come in with this punk attitude and absolutely flying you know they they, they make millions in millions in um, in merchandise sales because they built up such a loyal kind of following but all based on this heretical question of why does the water category have to be based around purity you know why can't it be based around punk yeah no it's wonderful yeah they're a great great brand to check out if you're unfamiliar yeah i'm going to jump to listener questions now so asking the general public for their opinion be it on brexit or boat names is notoriously fraught with danger but that's not stopped us asking so as usual we've selected two i'm going to start with jenny jenny asks what ads have you seen recently that give you hope for the future of the industry I suppose you could probably include liquid death in that, but are there any others? I think brands, I would say, rather than ads. So I think um, I've got a lot of respect for Dove mm-hmm. and what they're doing. And I think it's one of the things that they did recently was that Turn Your Back campaign, which is when there was a, this weird filter on TikTok, like bold glamour, that makes people look incredibly but artificially beautiful. Like it's, it's ridiculous. And they basically led the backlash against that. Um, and they could do it because the authenticity they've built up through their, um, you know, real beauty platform and all the, all of the the work that they've done around, you know, promoting 
you know, the sort of natural open conversation around what, what beauty is. So they could create this campaign to the point where they got people even attending the Oscars, Oscars to turn their back to the cameras. A really powerful movement to try and get these things shut down. And I think that's where brands really sort of have a place because there's an academic from MIT called Grant McCracken and he was saying that the best brands act like networks of the unacquainted which is where people who don't know each other but can can congregate around a common cause Um, and brands have got the perfect position to do that through their media muscle, their creativity, their, their clout and reputation and I think what Dove have done recently around that you know proves the power that brands can you know yes be creative, do creative content but actually make a difference and, you know, have a really strong sense of purpose. You know, I hate the fact that purpose has become a bit of a dirty word in the industry because, you know, it shouldn't, you know, I think brands can do both. A brilliant answer, but just for the purposes of stressing this before I ask the second question, because our listeners won't believe me, Paul has no idea what question two is, but it feels particularly apt given your answer to question one. So Mel, for question two, asks... Do you think the industry pendulum is swinging back from the era of fake purpose to actual proper commercial purpose? I would hope so. Yes, I mean it's one of the things that we sort of picked up on in our sort of candy constructed deck that's um, that's doing the rounds at the moment. But yes, I would hope so. IKEA is a fantastic example of how to get it absolutely right because I think purpose is really important. We we tend to use the phrase um, organising principle. Contagious because I think that's better. Like, what is your brand's organizing principle? It could be your North Star, but like, what is the very like foundation that your company is built on? And that should be the tent pole that everything hangs off from creative communications to HR to everything about that business. And you know, IKEA rediscovered their original purpose, you know, which was written by the founder back in the 70s, which was, you know, like better everyday design for everyday people. So They can apply that to everything they design and layout of the stores and simplicity and all that side of things. But when it comes to their marketing communications, they can do ads that have got dinosaurs riffing off grime tunes, you know, people doing very sort of um, low-cost versions of cribs and and, and so on. They have a lot of fun in their communications, but then still do things like massive sustainability drives, you know, where you can actually bring back um, IKEA furniture and they'll buy it off you and give you a discount on on new furniture. They've got like a circular economy um, programs going. And, you know, the better, better everyday design thing is one of their platforms is that they invest in refugees in different countries around the world to give them jobs at IKEA and language training. And then in like disaster zones and so on, they will build refugee shelters and shel- you know, shelters generally. But guess what? They're IKEA shelters. So better everyday design. They're fantastic. They really stand out. They work. They're very human. So, you know, it's a very long winded way of saying, you know, if you can actually get very, very purposeful purpose that is is linked to the very fabric of your brand and you know can make a difference in the world then why not but still have fun with your conditions the two are not mutually exclusive fantastic the final part of the interview is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests starting with what advice would you give to your younger self okay i think that i would try very hard to be a billionaire by the time i was 25 so that i could buy the daily mail and shut it down <laughs> yeah, still destroy it and hopefully we'd still be in the European Union and then whatever millions I had left I would place a bet on Leicester City winning the Premier League even though I'm middle of that and then the, finally I would basically tell myself that in my 50s 
I would be the majority shareholder of a company called Contagious with a tagline of, have you got it yet? In the middle of a global pandemic um, <laughs> that was effectively shut the world, locked the world down for two years. But, but everything was going to be fine. In fact, your business will actually end up growing after two years of, uh, of lockdown. Wow. I hadn't even thought about how you must have felt during the pandemic. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, wow. It was, it was interesting because a lot of you know clients rallied around and they were like, you know, what can we do to help? Let's start accelerating all those like digital training programs we've been talking to you about. Let's, you know, sort of just test things out and experiment. But people that didn't know us, we had absolute ding-dongs on LinkedIn. We weren't expecting it at all. You know, we took down some of our marketing. We had uh, <laughs> this campaign that was running around the Have You Got It Yet tagline of um, one of our sales guys dressed in a Hascam suit in various business scenarios. So that, that went very quickly out of sensitivity. Sure. But people, people were literally saying on LinkedIn, your name is toxic. If I was one of your clients, I'd refuse to work with you. You're associated with death and dying. And, you know, basically you need to change your company name. Wow. And this went on, like, you know, sustained across various, it wasn't just one or two cranks. It was like, you know, numerous people. So in the end, we, we ended up writing a statement that went on social media and also the front cover of our magazine saying, like, we're not going to change our name because there's two definitions for contagious. And, and, you know, one is medical, obviously, but the second is about spreading information, joy, entertainment, laughter, whatever. And now more than ever in lockdown, this is where brands can step up and be educators and entertainers and benefactors and, and actually help. So we will continue to showcase the very best of brand-funded creativity because, God, the world needs it. Well, well done for fielding so many morons. That must have been uh, <laughs> quite frustrating. But Number two, then, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Yeah, probably because of my age, but uh, ageism. I think it's the only tolerated prejudice in, in marketing at the moment. You know, I think there's, there's an obsession with youth. You know, you talked earlier about the law, legal industries. Like if you go to any other profession, like law, medicine, publishing, whatever, the age range is so much more balanced. In advertising, once you get to 50, it's almost like you're regarded as sort of like geriatric. You know, you're sort of past it. Um, and I just find that really strange when there's such a sort of demand for diversity, equity, inclusion. The way that the industry kind of briefs sometimes, you think that anyone over 50 is, 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 is irrelevant. And yeah, I, I, don't, I don't get that. You know, I think ageism is really divisive. And it also sort of taps into that, you know, I, I, I can understand why the industry uses demographics and, 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 and so on, but I just find it a little very disingenuous. You know, we wrote an article about that OK Boomer um, debate and just how awful it was. And it was like, Freddie Mercury was born in the same year as Donald Trump as was Dolly Parton, as was Jeffrey Dahmer. Like, are you going to say they're all the same type of people? It's nonsense, absolute nonsense. Like two are psychopaths and then two are like ridiculously flamboyant, creative, generous, talented people. <laughs> so, so yes, ageism. With the caveat of it's a lot more complicated than that, I gave a talk to Joe Glover's wonderful The Marketing Meetup about value-based pricing and how to price creativity not long ago. And it was one of the... Well, I suppose there were quite a few things which I thought weren't helped by the existing most common agency models out there, because I'm sure that's that, that's been uh, played a part, sadly, let's say. Number three, any books that you would recommend? So before you answer that, we will link to the Contagious 
commandments 10 steps to brand bravery which you penned a while ago now yes with chris bath my, my colleague in america but i wouldn't be so gauche as to, as to recommend that one so thank you giles so as i, I yeah i said I'm an, I'm an english grad so like fundamentally i'm always torn between uh, i always have to have a fiction book on the go and a business book on the go Perfect. um so fiction wise i'm a massive max porter fan i've just read his new book um shy which is about a sort of troubled teenager in a home and it's just you know he's also written you know group is a thing with feathers and lanny and so on but i just find as a writer he is the most incredible wordsmith you know that he he writes in a really kind of economical distinctive sometimes very deviant or divergent way but so profound so emotional it's one of those people i just keep going back and reading paragraphs or reading sentences and thinking Oh my God, like your allegories or the way that you land a thought is just incredible. So from an advertising industry point of view, I think people should read more Max Porter because what he does with language is just so profound and intense and ingenious and creative. So so Max Porter on, on the book, on the sort of th- fiction. And then I'll think about this and on the business side of books, we, we, when people join Contagious on the, on the editorial and advisory side, we have a, a book list. So they're given homework that they're expected to read within their sort of first few weeks at Contagious. There's five that we sort of insist on, and then there's sort of bigger library beyond that. But there's um, Anatomy of Humbug by Paul Feldwick, where he sort of picks apart all the sort of contradictory beliefs about advertising and, you know, tries to get you to think more flexibly about how you connect with humans and his sort of fame angle. Um, how brands grow, obviously, because I think so many brands are still influenced by buying sharps, thinking about, you know, mental availability and, and so on. So that's a really good one to be aware of. How Not to Plan. You know, you know, the Planner's Bible, Mythbusting, absolutely fantastic handbook. Um, again, brilliantly written. The Choice Factory by Richard Shotton. You know, um, and he's got a new book out as well at the moment that we um, covered a couple of months ago. But yeah, I think, again, behavioral biases, you've got to understand what influences people and why. And then just from a strategy point of view, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy by Richard Rummeld, you know, because yeah. it's all about how to implement action. And it's like, you know, sometimes strategy goes hand in hand with creativity so if you understand how to action things and understand the idea of like the value of of strategy in business then that informs your perception of of, of creativity and then you know my my sort of current read that i've got on my my bedside table is um atomic habits by james clear i think it's fantastic you know it's all about building how you build good habits um and break bad ones and (laughs) i have a lot of bad habits um (laughs) and i found that um yeah i've actually uh you know this has helped me to 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 lose weight exercise more and all sorts of stuff you know so i think that that, that's a really good one atomic habits okay brilliant we'll list to all of those and then number four then we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honor depending on your view to our guest who <laughs> has to give the reason why so would you kindly dedicate this episode it's going to sound really really cheesy and i don't want it to but um my wife sue because we literally met at university so we've been together a hell of a long time and she sort of uh, gave up you know life to travel to america on my behalf and i worked at the urbanet and um I could have, when I left Leo Burnett and before we set up Contagious, I could have gone to an equally comfy job at another big agency network. And instead, you know, she let me kind of take the risk on this weird little idea called Contagious, written on the back of a beer mat in a pub. And, um, you know, with two, well, with three kids at home, um, you know, basically gave me the, the, the strength and the, and the, the scope to, to, to launch Contagious and has been there, you know, ever since kind of thing so yes I, 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 without her contagious wouldn't have existed because it was part faith and part um allowing me to take a risk 
And she works in education, my wife. So she, she's a Senko at a, like a big primary school in, in um, Hertfordshire. And I always say that, you know, I've sold my soul to the advertising devil. I've got a beautiful, wonderful job and it's taken me all over the world and I absolutely love it. But, you know, I'm not doing something as fundamentally as important as helping severely autistic kids, dyslexic kids, fighting the educational system the way that she does. So it's like she's restored the karma. She's the yin yeah, to my... It's the balance, to my yeah. Hand. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, this episode is very, very proudly dedicated to your wife, Sue. Paul, thank you for, well, firstly, thank you for all of those books. So we've got Atomic Habits, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, The Choice Factory, How Not to Plan, How Brands Grow, Anatomy of Humbug, and Max Porter's Shy. Thank you for those. Thank you for giving us questions storming in the big unlock. I'm just going through all my manic notes here. Zero-based creativity. Thank you for reminding me to buy those Nordic socks on Instagram. Um, <laughs> how else can our listeners get more Paul Kemp Robertson? Sign up to the Contagious newsletter at um, contagious.com. And then once you see how wonderful the content is on that, you think, oh my God, what's hiding behind the paywall? Um, so subscribe to a membership at Contagious IQ, please, for your team. Um, and then we've got a um, sort of Contagious Live in the flesh. Um, we're doing the most contagious conference in London in December, in Islington and New York in January. And obviously, um, do buy the Contagious book published by Penguin. So uh, that would be great. Appreciate that. Perfect. Well, all of those are linked in this episode, so it should be easy to find. So I've really enjoyed this, Paul. It's been ace, mate. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. As I say, I sort of felt like a bit of an imposter syndrome, but um, I've really enjoyed the chat. Hopefully I haven't talked too much, but uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you. Thank you for some really interesting question. Oh, not at all. Thank you so much. And finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the podcast. Keep your questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find GASP online, or you can just email the mouthful that is call to action at gasp.agency. Try and I try and I try.